now, if you were here last week, you might be thinking, what happened? Did we all hop in a time machine? How did we get to chapter 6? It was chapter 2 last week. Um, no, you didn't. Uh, we're looking tonight, uh, and you might know this from Growth Group if you went along during the week, at chapter 3 and chapter 6, uh, and you'll know why soon enough. And then next week, we'll do the chapters in between, 4 and 5. So you're not missing anything, we're not skipping anything, um, but we are going to have to motor uh, if we're going to be able to get through uh, these chapters. Week 1, we saw the necessity of wisdom uh, for, in order to be faithful uh, as exiles, you know, as people who are not yet home, um, who aren't living uh, with God in his land just yet. We need wisdom in order to be faithful. Last week, we saw that we need courage as well, wisdom and courage together. Uh, but this week, uh, we're going to see, actually, the other way around, wasn't it? Courage first, wisdom second, never mind. Uh, this week, we're going to see courage and wisdom, no matter how much of those two ingredients we've got, they're not actually enough to save us. We can't save ourselves with all the uh, wisdom and courage in the world. Only God can actually save us. So uh, tonight, we're thinking about salvation. Uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, help us to understand our need well tonight uh, as we reflect on these two um, cool stories from uh, the Old Testament, the time of Daniel. We ask that you'll help us to um, yeah, learn what you intend from these, that we might trust Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, as a kid growing up, going to what we called Sunday school back in the day, uh, two of my favorite stories would have had to have been these two stories. Uh, chapter 3 is the story of uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and their ordeal in the fiery furnace. And chapter 6, as we've just read, is Daniel's own ordeal uh, in uh, the den of lions, the, the lion's den. And to choose between those two favourite stories was really tough. I mean, they're really cool. Like... You know, in kids' Bibles, they've always got really vivid pictures, um, you know, of the, the fiery furnace and the, oh, not three, but four people walking around in the fiery furnace. Wow, what's going on there? And then uh, in this story, there's the lion's den, and there was always a picture of Daniel sitting there with a lion on his lap, patting the lion, you know, because it's so docile and whatever. And I just couldn't choose between the two. I really couldn't. I love them both. And uh, hopefully tonight you'll see why it was so hard to split them. In fact, right now, I'm going to give you an, an idea of why it was so hard for me to split them uh, as a kid. And I'm going to do that by telling you another story that might sound really familiar, okay? So I've just made this story up, sort of. Uh, I had some good material to work with. Here goes my story, all right? There was once a king who thought very highly of himself, so highly that he expected not only service from his subjects, but absolute obedience, no matter what. You could almost say he wanted them to treat him like a god. And he wasn't shy about imposing his will either. He invented all manner of horrible punishments for anyone who would dare defy him. And so nobody did dare. Well, almost nobody. You see, among the king's close advisors and leading officials were some who, while being excellent servants of the king, they knew that he wasn't a god. They were sure of this because they knew the one true God who alone deserved their ultimate obedience and worship. So when the king demanded that the people bow down and pray to another, these brave few, in spite of the horrors that were threatened, 
respectfully refused to obey. Now, when the king heard of their disobedience, he was more than a little put out. This was unprecedented. What was a self-respecting despot meant to do? The king didn't want to lose some of his best men, but then neither did he want to lose face before the people. I know, he thought, I will show them that I am both ruthless and that I can be merciful by giving them an opportunity to repent. It'll cost me nothing and will only add to my magnificent reputation. But to his surprise and chagrin, the faithful few refused to bow down. They were steadfast in their commitment to the one true God. They were uncompromising and they would not worship another no matter what. And so the king, full of self-righteous indignation, had them thrown to their consuming doom. And that was that. Except that it wasn't. Incredibly, it wasn't because into the flaming jaws of death, their God, the one true God, whom they loved and served no matter what, sent a rescuer. Someone who stood between them and certain death who held it at bay, who endured the ordeal alongside them and who brought them through it unscathed. The king was gobsmacked. The king was elated. The king was perhaps even just a little bit humbled. And the king honoured the men and he honoured their God and acknowledged that he alone is the God who saves. Now, I wrote that really carefully, and I reckon it's two stories in one. Right? By leaving out names and some of the minor details, you put them together, and actually kind of the same story. I mean, they're not. They're two separate events, but they're so similar that you can tell them like that, almost as if they are the same story. Now, why? What's going on there? Is it just a coincidence? No, not a, not a coincidence at all. I mean, it, the author of these texts has done this very intentionally, almost repeating things, two separate historical events, almost repeating things, so that we would see the patterns behind the detail uh, and learn from those patterns what God reveals uh, of himself in those patterns. Uh, we'll also be informed, uh, uh, they will inform our worldview, they will encourage our faith, and they will highlight Jesus uh, as the Saviour. So I'm not actually going to take us into either of these stories in any great length, um, although we will uh, look at them uh, just dipping in. But what I want to draw out is this pattern and uh, the big picture uh, behind both stories. What can we learn? Well, First of all, we learn that idolatry, which is um, a feature in both these stories, idolatry is stupid. Idolatry is stupid. Uh, now, the way that the stories are told uh, really kind of give this impression. It's not a surprise that these stories are big, uh, uh, that kids love them. Right? And it's because they're actually told in a way that is kind of making mockery 
It's, it's almost farcical. So if you read chapter 3, uh, you might remember, you can flick back there now, uh, there are features in there, t- storytelling features, like uh, he keeps repeating long lists of all the governors and the satraps and the advisors and the treasurers and the, you know, uh, and then he keeps repeating all the musical instruments, the flute and the lyre and the zither and the harp and the da 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 And it's got this rhythm to it that sounds a lot like the court of King Caractacus or Dr. Seuss or something like that, right? It feels a lot like a kid's story. And I think that's very intentional because it's meant to draw out the farcical nature of the idolatry that the king is demanding. Again, another feature is the repetition of this phrase in that chapter, chapter 3, set up. Nine times that phrase is used. The king set up a statue of himself. He set it up over here. It was set up by him. So something that is made by human hands is then set up as an object of worship. It's stupid. It makes no sense. Idolatry is stupid. And yet, the temptation is real, very real. Now, uh, what I want you to do at this point is imagine yourself in the situation uh, of, um, on the plains of Jura, uh, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's circumstances. King Nebuchadnezzar had built a massive statue uh, he obviously hadn't kind of picked up on all the, uh, all the implications of the vision, the dream that he'd received in the previous chapter. And uh, he just kind of got stuck on when uh, Daniel said, you are the head of gold. He goes, cool, I'm the head of gold. Might as well make a whole statue of gold then. Uh, and so he makes this 27-meter high statue, and he, uh, it's made out on a plain, right? So a big, vast, open expanse of land. And the only thing breaking that expanse from horizon to horizon is this 27-metre-high statue. And it's the dedication of the statue. And all the important people get invited and all the unimportant people get invited so that there are thousands and tens of thousands of people out on this plane around the statue. And when they hear the music play, everybody is commanded to fall down flat on their face and worship the statue. And you're there. And you know that you shouldn't do it. You know that it's stupid. You know that it's idolatry. And you know that if you don't do it, the consequences are dire. So the music starts playing and you're standing there among that crowd and everybody starts going down. Are you going to be the last one standing? That's pretty real, isn't it? I know my knees would be shaking and I'm pretty sure they'd cave. I'm pretty sure I'd end up because, because the pressure would be so great. Pressure of the culture around you just kind of all bowing down to this one statue. And I'm sure that my brain would be playing all sorts of clever tricks on me as well, right? I'd be telling, me, telling myself all sorts of things to save my own skin, to save myself. Uh, I'd say things like this. It doesn't really matter. Because, like, worship is an internal thing, not an external thing. And God knows that. God knows my heart. He knows that I could bow down here but not actually really be worshipping the statue. In fact, I could bow down here and be worshipping him. I could say a prayer to him as I do so. I could pray for the salvation of all these people as I bow down. And I could justify it like that. Um, Or perhaps... 
I could justify it like this. Why would God, who's clearly been at work in bringing us here in the first place and, and raising us up to positions of power and influence, why would he want us to throw it all away with this one simple, stupid little act of bowing down to the statue? Surely he wouldn't. So I'll just fake it and then we'll still have the influence that he intended for us and, and that's surely what he wants. The temptation is so real to give in, to cave. That's how it would have been for the three friends. Daniel's temptation, he's a little different and I think you know, we need to understand the difference to understand how we might be tempted as well. Daniel, in the story that was read for us, uh, you know, the command there is that uh, nobody pray to anybody except to the king, which again is stupid, praying to a human being. But the temptation was real. The temptation would have been so real because it would have been so easy for Daniel to avoid the consequences, to avoid the lion's den. I mean, his habit was to go to his room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem and he would pray there before the open windows three times a day. It doesn't take a genius to work out that he could have just closed the windows, right? <laughs> Simple. He could have just closed the windows and kept praying. Nothing lost, surely. And it's not like the command was to actually pray to Darius. He didn't have to pray to Darius. No one was making him do that. No one's making anybody pray to the king. The law was you're not allowed to pray to anyone except the king. And even then, for only 30 days. Surely he could have just kind of kept his prayers on hold for 30 days and then spent the whole day praying <laughs> on day 31. But he knew... That worship is a matter of the heart. And he knew that if he were to change his behavior because of the pressure that was coming on him, because of the, the punishment that was threatened, he would be compromising his worship of God. And so he wasn't willing to do it. Again, I wonder how you would go in those circumstances. Would you just fudge a little and give in to the temptation? I'm actually pretty sure I would. And we need to understand how temptation works because we will be tempted as well. Tempted and pressured, perhaps not commanded in our situation, although it's good to remember that there are still places and people in the world who are commanded uh, to you know, take part in idolatry and who pay for any denial with their lives even today. We ought to be praying for them, but that's not likely to be our circumstance but we are going to be tempted to worship idols and false gods and deny or compromise our faith in the one true God. It's not a matter of if or when, it's just a matter of how. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, well, I'll keep my eye out for any 27-metre high statues and I'll steer well clear. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, idolatry uh, looks different in our age. So the first thing we need to understand, or well, the second thing is that temptation is real. Idolatry is stupid, temptation is real, and Satan is sneaky, number three. Right? Uh, in cultures like ours, which as a kind of, you know, our Australian culture here, we've largely kind of rejected the idea of any spiritual realm of great significance. Right? What you see is what you get. We're a materialistic culture. That's us. Uh, and in that environment, Satan has different tactics. He doesn't, he doesn't put, uh, you know, he doesn't uh, make idolatry 
uh, a thing about worshipping statues. They're rarely so obvious. These days, it's material uh, things that become the likely idols. Now, some of you uh, might know of Tim Keller, uh, who died during the week on Friday, passed away. Uh, Really sad to hear of that, you know, but kind of sad, but obviously good for him. He does amazing stuff on contemporary idolatry. This is his book called Counterfeit Gods, okay? Um, And uh, first one to me this evening, can borrow that uh, from me. Um, But um, yeah, look him up, uh, especially his stuff on idolatry. Uh, So how are we going to uh, avoid idolatry in our day and age and the temptation to give into it? Uh, The first thing uh, that we need to do is understand what the idols are. Now, you might think idol statue, you might think idol bad thing, but actually an idol can be a good thing. An, An idol is anything that we simply put in the place of God. And if you think about it, good things are the most likely candidates that uh, our hearts will turn into idols because we'll elevate them to a status that they don't deserve, especially if our worship of God uh, isn't strong. You know, if our faith in God isn't strong, then we'll be vulnerable. So we need to understand that idols are more likely to be good things that we make ultimate things. Okay, but what good things? Well, the best way to work that one out is to look uh, out in the world around us, the world that we live in, and, and think about what does this world really value as most important? What is this world giving itself for uh, in worship? Uh, and so uh, all you've got to really do is read the ads, watch the ads, uh, because that's where you're going to see it all. And what do you find? Well, idols are things like health. Right? Health is a good thing. It's a blessing from God but it can be distorted. It can look like different things for different people. Uh, It might be being really super fit. It might be looking amazing in your body. Uh, It might be just kind of, you know, taking care of yourself so that you don't hurt too much in, you know, your joints and all that sort of stuff, right? It changes over uh, as you age what health looks like. But health can be an idol. It's a good thing we can make an ultimate thing. Another one is wealth, okay? Uh, Not just money, but all that money can do for us. Uh, The first sort of manifestation of that is all the things that we can get with our money. Uh, So stuff that we fill our houses with, you know, we're always told by advertisers to, um, you know, buy the next thing, upgrade, whatever it might be. And that stuff, again, can be good stuff, but if we care too much about it, Uh, it becomes idolatry, uh, the way that we treat it. But it needn't be stuff, right? Because uh, uh, wealthy societies tend to have enough stuff, and so it gets morphed into experiences. And so we look at what other people are doing and the fun that they're having, and we think, well, I want some of that fun as well. And so uh, uh, it can be experiences that we chase after uh, and use our wealth to do it. But it might be other things that are harder to see and touch. It might be our status and reputation. Uh, idolatry is easy to spot if you find yourself a slave to the opinion of others. Right? Uh, that probably means that uh, your reputation has become an idol or the approval of others has become an idol to you. Could be family, could be any number of things, good things that we make an ultimate thing. And then, once we've acknowledged that, sort of recognized them out there, 
we've got to understand that because we live in this world, we live as exiles in this world, we're going to be influenced by those idols. But how do you know if you are? How do you know if you're just appreciating a good thing as a good thing or if it's drifting, if you're being tempted to make it an idol? Well, the answer is they start to take over. Idolatry is stupid, but it's sneaky, and so it can start to take over your life. It can dominate uh, your... uh, It can influence your actions. It can dominate your thoughts. It can be what you talk about most of all. Uh, It can be what you spend your money on. So you can look at your credit card balance, work out where the money's going, and go, is this pointing in a certain direction? You know, is this revealing that I'm... uh, Uh, you know, overvaluing something. Um, But those are kind of all signs. What is is taking control? What is dominating uh, your life, your thoughts, your conversation, how you use uh, all your resources? Do the hard work, okay? You have to do some hard work at that point. You have to look in the mirror honestly and kind of go, where is it for me? And there will be an answer. It's not nothing, right? There, there will be some things that are your temptation points, your weak points. And when you find them, then you've still got work to do. And the work to do then is to simply uh, repent and you know, to acknowledge that before God, to say, God, this thing has an inordinate amount of control over me, whatever it is. I, th- I fear that I'm making it an ultimate thing and that it's taking worship away from you. Please help me deal with it. So you repent and refuse to continue to bow down to whatever it is. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31, I reckon, is really helpful in thinking about this. Um, It says this. uh, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. So Paul is putting life, your life, my life, in context. Jesus has come once to save. He is returning to judge. And uh, Paul is saying, the time is short. Therefore, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. It says that in the Bible, okay? I'm going to explain what it means in a second. Those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, don't make temporary things, don't treat temporary things like permanent things. Don't don't treat good things like ultimate things. It doesn't mean men run away from your wives. Let me be very clear about that. No, he means men, married men, husbands, love your wives in this life, but love them in the best way possible, that you teach them and lead them to love Jesus most of all. Right? That's the kind of thing he means. If you own stuff, don't, don't let it engross you. Don't let it take over you. In fact, use it. Make use of it if you possibly can, for what lasts and what is permanent. Uh, in, in Matthew 6, there's that great passage where Jesus is telling his disciples uh, what they needn't worry about, what's not worth worrying about. Uh, he says to them in Matthew 6, verse 31, 
Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here's the reality. The more you have and the more you want, the more you'll worry. You'll worry about the things you don't have, and you'll worry about the things that you do have. And God has said, you have one in heaven who cares for you. So don't worry about it. Leave tomorrow to God and use today uh, for his sake. Don't let the worries, your worries in this life, shape your choices in this life. Because if you do, you will end up living faithless lives. So idolatry is stupid, but temptation is real and Satan is sneaky But don't despair, faithfulness is possible. We learn this from Daniel and his friends. Faithfulness is possible. Daniel and his friends were faithful to God because they believed that he had been and would be faithful to them. He had been and would be faithful to them. I love the way uh, that Daniel's friends uh, speak to King Nebuchadnezzar when they're brought before him. Uh, Chapter 3 Verses uh, 16 to 18, they say this. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. (laughs) Aren't they polite? (laughs) they're so polite they're so respectful but they're so clear with Nebuchadnezzar that he is not their king he is not their god and they're not going to bow down to his statue they are so confident in God's ability and his willingness to save but they also recognize that God's exclusive claim to their worship isn't based on whether or not he does save but rather on the fact that he can save and that's enough for them That's true worship, isn't it? Focused on God's worth and not their own. And their confidence in God is is, uh, well-placed, isn't it? Because he's been with them up until this point. They trust that he will be with them into the future. And Daniel, uh, in chapter 6, verse 10, expresses his faith. He doesn't even use words, you know, Daniel. He just keeps doing what he'd done before. He quietly goes back to his room, leaves the windows open... His enemies are outside watching him and he prays to his God just as he had before, just as he had before. He knew, you see, that to allow his fear of punishment to modify his behaviour would be too great a compromise. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego believed that their faith in God was something worth dying for. Shouldn't you and I conclude that our faith in God is something worth living for? Now, I could leave it there. We would have done chapter 3 and chapter 6. But it would be what I uh, have heard called a good sermon for a synagogue. Right? It's from the Bible. It's from the Old Testament. But we haven't talked about Jesus. How is, how is this a passage that's going to help us trust in Jesus and understand more deeply his uh, great love for us? 
Well, I think it's by making uh, one more comparison, and that is between Daniel and Jesus. Now, I've said before in this series that Daniel is an unusual Bible character in that he is squeaky clean. There are very few of these in the Bible. Everyone looks pretty ordinary. Apart from Jesus himself, everyone looks pretty ordinary. Daniel is a very, very rare character. When you find a character like this, uh, you can bet money on it that they are a type of Jesus. We're meant to think of Jesus when we come across them and when we read about them. They're meant to point us forward to Jesus. They're not Jesus, but they're a type of him and they point us forward in hope to him. So let me uh, give you an idea of how this works. Uh, So Daniel had enemies, uh, enemies who were conspiring against him. They were religious leaders uh, of the nation and they were trying to get him killed. Hmm, that reminds me of someone. (laughs) Jesus had enemies. They were religious leaders of uh, the nation and they were trying to get him killed. They were envious of the power and authority that he was gaining and it meant that they were losing out and they wanted to get rid of him. Uh, when, uh, uh, when challenged, Daniel goes to his room and he prays with the windows open, knowing what the consequences will be. When Jesus reaches his uh, greatest challenge, when he knows that the cross is drawing close, he goes to the place that he regularly went to to pray as well. No windows needed, it was in a garden, we call it the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went there to pray again on the night that he was betrayed, knowing that he would be found, because people were watching him and they knew his patterns. And so they both prayed. They were arrested uh, and they were brought before the king. And in both cases, or or the governor, the ruler, and in both cases, the king was in great distress. They didn't want... Uh, the person in front of them to die. Uh, um, uh, Darius didn't want Daniel to die and Pilate didn't want Jesus to die, or at least he didn't want Jesus' blood to be on his hands. They both tried to find a way to uh, free the prisoner, but none could be found. And so judgment fell. Uh, In Daniel's case, uh, he was thrown into the lion's den and in Jesus' case, he was handed over to be crucified. He was handed over to the Jews and he was handed over to the Romans and together uh, they took him to the cross. And on the cross, uh, you may know that Jesus quoted uh, Psalm 22 verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, In Psalm 22 verse 13, we read this, verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Jesus quoted that psalm, not that verse, but that psalm from the cross. Um, Daniel was thrown to a certain death. Jesus nailed to a cross to die a certain death, and indeed he did die there. Uh, As they were... um, And he was taken down off the cross and he was put in a hole in the ground. Uh, The lion's den was a hole in the ground. Both holes, the opening to both holes were covered over with a large stone. Both had a seal placed on the stone. Both had a guard placed by them to make sure uh, that nothing untoward happened. In the morning... The next morning in Daniel's case and two mornings later in Jesus' case, 
Before dawn or at dawn, at first light, people rushed to the tomb. Uh, King Darius rushed to Daniel's tomb and the women uh, went to uh, the tomb of Jesus and later the disciples rushed there as well. And what they found was not a dead man in either case, but rather somebody who had somehow miraculously been saved from death or brought back from death in the case of Jesus. A miraculous protection had occurred uh, in the case of Daniel, we read, God sent his angel to shut the mouth of the lions, and we know that God uh, rescued Jesus from death itself. For Daniel, uh, it's described as a vindication. He says, because I was innocent in God's sight, uh, he protected me from this judgment. And we know that Jesus himself was innocent and declared innocent. Uh, and his resurrection was a vindication of his innocence, that death, even death itself, because the difference between the two is Jesus did die, but even death itself could not keep its hold on Jesus. It had no claim on him because he was innocent. And lastly, uh, as Daniel's taken out of the tomb, uh, his body, his condition is described, and it says there was, uh, sorry, out of the den, no wound was found on him which is actually a contrast, isn't it, to Jesus? And I think it's a significant contrast because Jesus' time in his tomb was different to Daniel's time. Jesus' time in his tomb had a very specific purpose. It was by his wounds we are healed. Jesus' death was actually in our place. He paid the price for our sin. And uh, the experience of Daniel in the tomb points us forward to this greater salvation that Jesus uh, himself experiences. At the end of uh, Daniel chapter 6, uh, once he's pulled out of the den, King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. Right? He wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. And he wrote, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Dan Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Gee, that sounds awfully familiar to Revel uh, similar to Revelation chapter 5. From the lips of a pagan king... The praise of heaven comes. Listen to the song sung of Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll. This is a song that is uh, sung by people, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb, we've sung it tonight, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. See, salvation in the Bible is all of one piece. It is God's work on our behalf. God rescued Daniel from the lion's den and he rescued Daniel's friends from the flaming furnace. He was the one who walked in the fire alongside them. And he is the one who has walked into our world, into our life, to die for in our place on the cross, to be our saviour from our sin, that from which we could not save ourselves. Notice in the stories of Daniel and his friends, they still had to go through the ordeal, right? 
but God was with them in it and brought them through it. That's the nature of our life as well. You know, there are trials, there are ordeals, and we will all face them. But God is faithful and he has promised to be with us in every single one of them and to bring us through every single one of them because he has already done all that was needed to save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much that uh, Jesus has come and uh, proven himself faithful, that he was faithful to you and faithful to us, that he followed through on your salvation plan and that we are blessed by his faithfulness. Father, thank you for the examples of faithful people in your word, for the example of Daniel and his friends who uh, recognized the temptation before them and they felt its weight, but they didn't bow under the pressure. Father, help us to uh, look to Jesus and his faithfulness for us and be emboldened to not only stand up under the pressure, but to actually seek out the sources of the pressure for us. What are the things that we may even have been blind to but need to see so that we can understand where temptation is pushing and pulling us, where it's dominating us, where it's making us its slaves? Help us to recognize those areas so that we can look to Christ and find the strength that we need and the love that we need to say no to sin and yes to Christ because he is our faithful Lord and Saviour. We pray in his name. Amen.